What about marriage, courtship, family life? Well, that's a big one. And that, that was the hardest part of the book. And that's probably going to be the most controversial part of the book. Because in many ways, we have lost this concept of, of courtship. Courtship has degenerated long ago into dating. Uh, dating, in turn, degenerated into uh, hooking up. And hooking up, uh, in turn, led directly to cultural and sometimes legal warfare between the sexes. Legal accusations of you know, sexual abuse, sexual misbehavior, vague things, uh, sexual this and sexual that. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, the loss of these ideals, such as courtship, for example, traditional courtship, which was a, a blending of two families. It was an agreement, not just between two individuals, but between two families uh, and uh, solemnized uh, by a church or by a, in some ethical way. Um, and the loss of this, this kind of hyper-individualism where we make up the rules as we go along, um, we make up our own rules, um, it has led to uh, very serious consequences. That Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex and Ruling the World is a new book out by S.K. Baskerville. And it's well worth a read, even if you do not agree with the general thesis. Let's just say another viewpoint is always welcome. What is a gentleman and why should every man aspire to be one? Does the ideal still have any value in the age of feminism, toxic masculinity and men going their own way? The author of A Gentleman's Guide, S.K. Baskerville, asks these questions and more, and he is my guest, coming up. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. I hope you're all well. We have a great guest coming up, S.K. Baskerville, author of A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, sex, and ruling the world. And if you love it or are offended, I ask those in the latter category to restrain yourselves when you are emailing and contacting me. Keep an open mind. Take a deep breath. I took a wonderful and deep dive, by the way, at the lovely Library of the Chathams in Morris County, New Jersey last week, when I spoke to a group in person and via Zoom about the American Dream, this podcast, Dig Life Deep, and my career in journalism. Thank you for having me at the Library of the Chathams. Hope to have more on that in the coming weeks, as well as tell you about the rollout of my new website. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. 
My guest is S.K. Baskerville, and he's the author of A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Dr. Baskerville, you're welcome to my show. Thank you. Where are you today? I'm in Romania. Oh, you travel a bit, and I believe you're, all, you're based in Warsaw, where you are a university lecturer? No, that's correct. And just to tell our audience a bit about yourself, uh, what you teach, and uh, you know a little bit about your background. And we're going to get into this very uh, interesting, if not controversial, book you've just written. I, I'm going to ask you, was it a bit of tongue-in-cheek, or is there something serious about this? Because it's a pretty serious topic when you're talking about gentlemen's manners, and it's countercultural. But just a little bit about yourself. Well, I have about 30 years' experience uh, teaching uh, in universities in the United States and Europe, politics and international politics. Um, I've written several books on the politics of the family and sexuality and on religion, uh, on the English Puritans. Uh, but this is my first attempt at a, at a non-academic or a um, popular book. I'm going to read the title. The reaction to it from the um, literary press will be interesting to to learn. We can guess what some of it is, but it's a gentleman's guide to manners, sex, and ruling the world. Wow, that's a pretty heavy topic. Um, you don't worry about any backlash here from you know maybe the feminist movement or from secular press. I mean, this is sort of like, feel the title itself feels like a throwback um, to the 60s, 70s. Uh, you, you run the risk of being called a uh, male chauvinist. Well, I'm sure about that. Yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm expecting a certain amount of uh, pushback on that. I may actually also be opposed by some uh, of the more extreme men's rights um, groups or uh, uh, as well. So I may get it from both both ends. Why did you write the book? What was the inspiration? What prompted you? Well, uh, a number of factors. Uh, I've written several books about um, the politics of sexuality and family and the relations between men and women uh, and um, the, the experiences of men in, in the modern world uh, and parents in particular. But I decided that uh, um, just writing books about the objective reality, no matter how in-depth they were, um, was a little, uh, was only, um, could only go so far. People could only handle so much uh, heavy and sometimes quite uh, depressing uh, um, reality about the nature of, you know, the family today and sexuality and the politics of it. So I decided a more practical book directed at men, because I think a lot of men uh, today are confused and there's an awful lot of complaints about the status of men and about the treatment of men in the law, for example, and in the culture. But I sometimes felt that even the men didn't get it quite right, uh, that some of the complaints are not always well articulated or well um, formulated. Um, and I felt like um, uh, I, it had to have some coherence to it. So I tried to write a book that was a combination of some of the traditional strictures on the way men and gentlemen should behave but also um, updated a little bit or reformulated a bit to meet some of the challenges that men face today. Give us some flavor of the book. Maybe take out a few sections here and there on what we can expect. What are some of the gems there for us? Well, it's a traditional book on, uh, of a kind that goes back to the, the Renaissance and even the late Middle Ages. Uh, for centuries, uh, older men have been writing books 
on how gentlemen should behave. And these books are directed toward younger men and sometimes toward uh, parvenus, men from the lower classes, peasants moving to the city and so forth who want to work their way up through the social ranks and want to know the code of, of, of acceptable behavior, the, the manners, the graces, the, the, um, you know, the, the comportment that, that a man needs to be an urban dweller, to be a, considered civilized, uh, to take his place as a citizen. And it's more than just a matter of, uh, you know, refinement or uh, graces or manners. It's also a, a matter of, of ruling. It's a, these are, these are the, the prerequisites for being a citizen in the modern world and for ruling, not necessarily ruling uh, large swaths of, of, of the world, but ruling your part of it, the part that, you know, that you're given in life. Um, if you look at some of the, the books of history, uh, similar books in history, Castiglione is the courtier, or Machiavelli's The Prince is an extreme example. Or in the English-speaking world, Thomas Eliot's The Governor. Uh, the title of that book indicates that it was, it was written for statesmen. It was written for men who aspire to be uh, rulers. And again, not, just, not grand rulers necessarily, but sometimes quite small rulers, rulers of themselves, starting with themselves, rulers of their family, rulers of their local communities, uh, and those uh, for whom they have responsibilities. So it's a, in many ways, it's a traditional advice book, uh, you know, courtesy book uh, of that kind. But I tried to update it for the 21st century. And the, 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 the challenges today are, are quite different than they have been over the, over the centuries. Um, uh, today, the, the main threats to a, to a man's uh, manliness, his masculinity, doesn't come from other men's masculinity. It doesn't come from the bully on the block or the rival in love so much as it comes from the culture and from a, a political ideology that, that, that uh, denigrates masculinity itself. Toxic masculine attempts to redefine uh, so-called masculinity or to uh, extinguish it altogether. So um, this was an attempt to shore up our, our traditional ideas of masculinity, but also to give direction to men today who face challenges that are different from those in the past. So I go through the various kinds of uh, you know, traditional t topics, attire, comportment, table manners. So how they dress. That, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Treatment toward, uh, of women. Uh, there's a section on education, how, how a gentleman should be educated, how to educate yourself if you didn't go to a, to a school or if you don't think the school you went to or a university, or if you think the university you went to or are going to now isn't adequate, uh, how you could make up the deficiencies. We all have these deficiencies, by the way. None of us is a, is a perfect gentleman. There's never been one. Uh, it's a lifelong ambition. It's a lifelong endeavor. Uh, we're all working to, to improve our um, comportment, our behavior, our, um, our manliness, our uh, education, um, and so forth. So it's, it's an all-around guide to, to gentlemanly behavior um, with a, a few twists along the way. And uh, if I may say so, a few jokes. Oh, but I hope jokes with, with serious, with serious uh, intent. Well, we do need some humor in today's world. Everything has changed. Uh, and we went through uh, a wave of change during the 60s. Um, somebody called this, you know, the second wave of feminization, that it was preceded by a, an earlier wave. You're saying the proper way for men today uh, to to live by you know the old fashioned rules is what they did they, they how do they how they treat women how they interact with their colleagues how they dress covered and I'm I'm sure that there are deficiencies I'm sure there are areas that I missed but it is an attempt 
to create, uh, I mean, in many ways, the ideal of the gentleman is, in the English-speaking world, at least, it is the ideal of the, uh, the citizen. It is the basis of our citizenship. And it was formulated originally, it must be said, the concept was formulated originally for the upper classes, uh, for the gentry of England, um, the lower, that is to say, the lower, largely untitled no nobility. Um, but alongside that history, so it's always been identified with the gentry class, especially, especially in England uh, and in countries associated with England. But alongside that status, that social status, there's always been um, another element, another dimension, the ethical or moral um, element. And throughout the history of this, this idea, there have always been challenges. People who have claimed that the gentry, the, the gentlemen of their day, aren't behaving the way gentlemen should behave. Now, there's, there's always been a, a people who have been ready to point their finger at the upper classes, the ruling classes, and to say, um, you're not behaving the way the upper classes should behave, the ruling classes, uh, either for moral reasons or religious reasons or ethical reasons or um, you know, a number of reasons. There have always been challenges to what is a gentleman. It's, not, it's never been just a social status. And then as the idea spread to other English-speaking countries, to uh, the United States, to Australia, to Canada, to Ireland, to Nigeria, um, the class element, the element of the English class system became less important, and the ethical element became more important. But there was always a status element. If you look at, for example, in the United States, in cities like Philadelphia or Boston, it was all very much the ethic of the ruling class, uh, of the, you know, the WASP class, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant class, but also something that, that filtered down very effectively to others as well and was emulated by uh, the middle classes and even the working class as they aspired to you know, become participants in the, in the social and political system. So there's always been a tension in it between your status as, as a, in society and your comportment, your ethical behavior. That whole world you describe is all gone. There is no real aristocracy today. I mean, in America, it's vast middle class country, although the middle class is, has been disappearing just economically and socially, there are no aristocracy to really emulate in the way that you describe here. So, you know, if we took some examples from today's world, they would be rock stars and billionaires and um, maybe CEOs. They're not exactly gentlemen, all of these people. No, they're, they're not. <laughs> Quite the contrary in many cases. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be. Um, there are people to whom the rest of us, many of us, look up to. to. And uh, this has always been the problem over the centuries is that the, you know, the, the ruling classes, the upper classes, and they are, are the, the strata of society. You're right. There's no class system left, certainly in, in, in most countries outside England. But um, there is great. That's interesting you say that. You, you still feel, uh, uh, just picking up on that, that you, you think England is an exception to that there is a class system still in England? To some extent, I mean, yeah, it's okay. Well, I guess down. if you take the royalty and then you know the landed gentry that still exist, to, to some extent, yeah. But you're right; these these cl the classes have been replaced by by status symbols of various kind, uh, other forms of of, of wealth. Um, but they're still we still have very un unequal societies in many ways, and we do, um, you know, as you say, rock stars, royalty, movie stars, uh, are still those that set the cultural trends. So there is an, it is important that these ideals continue uh, and that the ethical concept, the ethical dimension of this code of behavior um, be uh, available and be articulated 
so that those who are the, the trendsetters of society can can consider adopting this and you know setting an example for the rest of us to follow. What are some other examples of good manners and good behaviour for a gentleman? I mean, we talked about dress code and education. Is there could you sort of is there a, is there ten principles? You know, they pay for women when they go out to dine. They wear jacket and tie. They apologize when they blow their nose or they play this kind of sport. They comb their hair back. I mean, what are some of the uh, concepts here? Well, there's, there's, there's a number of, of, I mean, as the most basic, the concept of the gentleman has always been a, a matter of, first of all, self-control has been a very important part of it. Um, the English Puritans uh, and American Puritans had a big role in the formulation of the ideal, the idea of self-control in areas of, for example, alcohol, um, gambling, and especially above all sex. Uh, the idea of self-effacement, uh, a gentleman is not one who calls attention to himself. He's not a, yeah, I, I emphasize the importance of leadership, but leadership is something that you often have one has thrust upon him, not something that he goes seeking. Moses, for example, who tried to wiggle out of the role that God, God gave him, uh, is, is uh, an archetype in this respect. So there's the concept of, of, of leadership, but paradoxically perhaps combined with the concept of, of self-effacement and, and humility. Uh, and, um, you know, not always being the first to speak out or to act, but sometimes being the last to do so. Um, there is the concept of the being a champion or a defender, not only of women, but also of the oppressed, uh, the downtrodden, the disadvantaged, the weak. Um, this is uh, this doesn't necessarily mean joining political causes and defending these things out of the from the anonymity or from the safety of a group, but doing so as an individual, uh, doing so the, for those who, with whom you are in contact or for those for whom you are responsible. When you are uh, when you find uh, injustice or untruth reigning in society, you stand up and you say something about it, and you speak out, and you do your best to correct it. Um, you don't necessarily adopt the political ideology and try to get a, a big crowd of people to you know to, to take over the government, but you do your best to help to rectify injustices and and uh, untruths in in this in the little world that you, over which you have you may have uh, dominion yourself. What about marriage, courtship, family life? Well, that's a big one. And that, that was the hardest part of the book. And that's probably going to be the most controversial part of the book. Because in many ways, we have lost this concept of, of courtship. Courtship has degenerated long ago into dating. Uh, dating, in turn, degenerated into uh, hooking up. And hooking up, uh, in turn, led directly to cultural and sometimes legal warfare between the sexes. Legal accusations of, you know, sexual abuse, sexual misbehavior, vague things, uh, sexual this and sexual that. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, the loss of these ideals, such as courtship, for example, traditional courtship, which was a, a blending of two families. It was an agreement, not just between two individuals, but between two families uh, and uh, solemnized uh, by a church or by a, in some ethical way. Um, and the loss of this, this kind of hyper-individualism where we make up the rules as we go along, um, we make up our own rules. Um, it has led to uh, very serious consequences that it's not trivial by any means. It's not just longing for the good old days. I mean, we have, by, by, by renouncing the traditional rules of courtship and marriage and so forth, we've substituted new ones, um, new ones uh, that are often dictated by ideology and are often enforced not by social norms and not by social pressure, 
but by the gendarmerie of the state, for example, lawyers, judges, policemen. Um, so it's it's uh, you know we, we've we've uh, this is one theme of the book is that the decline of these traditional um, these traditional standards and and methods of enforcing them has led to a huge increase in the power of the state, the power of the state functionaries, the civil servants, the gendarmes, the judges and lawyers, the courts, uh, and so forth. So they've and taken over the role in in huge ways of what the family and the father did in the past. And the church. And, and, and the church. Exactly. Precisely. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is S.K. Baskerville, and he's the author of A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I had... Timothy Gordon, who's a scholar, um, and he has a new book out on patriarchy, and he hits on these mm-hmm. themes that the father's place in the home, we need to return to tradition. It's a controversial thesis, and he's getting backlash on this, but he said um, his studies have shown that women who are at home raising the kids and the men, the, the breadwinners, they're much happier and more contented entities, and he uses several examples to prove his case, it seems that you're almost hitting the same buttons to some degree. Yes, I, I must confess, though it's published by the same publisher, I have not read that book yet, but I plan to do so. Yeah. But yes, it sounds yeah. like we've arrived at similar conclusions through through different means. And, and mine, uh, my uh, book is an attempt um, not just to lay out the, what I think is the truth about the matter, but to do so in a way that's practical, has some practical um, applicability for men today. And, and, and uh, hopefully, you know, I'm sure I'll get feedback from women as well. Uh, but I think, I think what I, what I do lay out are things that women often want as well. They expect men to be masculine. They expect men to, uh, to be leaders. So, so let me stop you there, um, doctor, when you say you expect men to be masculine in, 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 in a physical sense or in a, in a, in their mindset and in their actions and, their thought process. How, how do you mean that? I, I could mean a lot of things being masculine. Yeah, yeah precisely. Well, I think it, it means in a very, first of all, it means one thing is a very basic sense is, is you know, physical uh, mm. strength, physical courage. Mm. And there are a number of books out there on manliness. This is another trend in the publishing business. There's been a number of books that have come out on manhood, manliness, masculine behavior, and so forth. And that's part of the, the gentlemanly ideal. And I, I consulted those books. And I incorporated some of what I thought were the best best things that they said about that. So yeah. physical courage and physical strength are, are certainly important. I felt, however, as I wrote the book, um, that physical courage and strength are not really what, what we have a, a serious shortage of today. It's more moral courage and moral strength. And that's what I emphasize a little bit more, is having the not just the physical courage, not just being the officer, but also being the gentleman. Um, and uh, you know, matching your physical, because many men today, I think there are a lot of men today who have physical courage, but lack moral courage. Uh, men who are not afraid of physical violence, soldiers, uh, policemen, um, 
men who work in construction or aviation or dangerous professions show great physical courage, but they often don't know how to behave when they when they when the the culture when they come up against the injustices or the wrongs that are being committed in the culture, the threats to their masculinity in the culture, and they lack what they lack is the moral courage. And you see this today, for example, in uh, there's many many books actually have come out on the gentlemanly ideal and articles and videos calling for the return to this ideal. But many times they are themselves watered down, feminized, uh, neutered in some sense. Uh, many, even of my, my colleagues who have uh, also called for the return to gentlemanly behavior do so in sometimes a little bit of a selective way. And they extol the virtues that are easy and that are safe and not the ones necessarily that are the most important. This is the age of equality, equality of the sexes. You know, we had the feminist movement and we also had the Me Too movement. It's a tough nut to crack. People listening to this will say, you want to bring us back to the Stone Ages. Well, equality is a different, different always been a difficult concept, hasn't it? Even, even among men. I mean, we all, we all believe in equality in certain ways in the, in the Western world, but we don't want to take it to the extent of the equality that is promised by communism. And when you're talking about equality between the sexes, it's in some ways a kind of meaningless term because we're comparing two, two things that are different. Um, uh, men and women are in, in, a, in the eyes of God, in the, you know, in the largest sense of the, of the word, they are equal. But we, uh, men and women in all societies, have always had very different uh, roles and um, functions in some ways. And uh, um, when we depart from those, we better know what we're doing. Mm. And uh, we've done it sometimes without a lot of um, thought and uh, with, and when the consequences, uh, when adverse consequences appear, we don't always want to uh, face them. We don't want to realize that you know the, we, we've made a mistake in some ways. And as you say, even many women, many women in fact, um, have second thoughts about certain aspects of what some call uh, gender equality. Uh, the gender equality is, is is a misleading term and oftentimes a a cover a euphemism for an ideology of um, of, of grabbing power. Uh, in many ways. Do you think we should return to that traditional model where women's place is in the home and not in the workplace? Should women go out to work or is it better that the men remain the breadwinners, the main breadwinner for that family? Well, uh, again, traditionally, men have been the breadwinners, um, the, the earners and the providers. And the point, I think, the essential principle that I try to emphasize in the book is that men are required to do this. They have no choice in the matter. Um, men have to provide at least for themselves. And if there's a family, uh, men have to provide for the family. Most women will not tolerate a man who does not uh, provide for the family or, mm. and protect the family. Whereas men will tolerate a woman, uh, of course, who, who stays home with the children and, um, uh, and, and tends to the, the domestic matter. So for women, it's a choice. For men, it's not a choice. They're, they're obligated to do it. And there's, there's no so um, if we depart from that model, we, we, we have to keep this in mind. We have to remember that um, you know, the woman can quit her job anytime she wants to, um, uh, that when more women enter the workforce, the, 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 the wages of all women and all men go down. And it, it, you get that's an interesting comment. Just that, that's worth examining. You said the wages of all, it, it push, it's a downward pressure on wages. That's what oh, the yes. studies are showing. This, this is yes. There are economists that have shown this, and I'm not economist. Okay, it, mm -hmm. it's very clear. You you add a hundred, you increase the work workforce by close to a hundred percent, and the wages are going to go down. Well, that creates a situation where women have to go into the workforce mm. because the, the wages of their husbands have, have been eroded, 
the wages of the other women have been eroded. They have to go into the workforce to, to provide for a household. My grandfather provided for nine children, a wife and nine children um, mm. by himself. Uh, no man could do that these days. So we have to be careful about this. Once you start sending women into the workforce en masse, you create a situation where even women who don't want to enter the workforce uh, feel pressure to do so. And they're shamed uh, into it, as uh, Tim Gordon mentioned on my show. That's yeah. in his words. And, and pressured financially, yes. Yeah, of course, society's expectations have uh, have risen considerably in a few generations, what they want um, in terms of their wants, size of their home, multiple cars, membership in the golf club, um, vacations twice a year. Um, so that has also changed the equation and how we look at things today. And maybe that's also pushing women to go out and work to to bring money into the home. Yeah, that's very true. And then there are also some other uh, impersonal tr- changes that have, have led to this. I mean, increasingly, the the, the, uh, the workforce is, is not uh, labor, manual, yeah. manual labor. It's the service economy. Many of these jobs, it is true. Women can do them just as well as men can. And um, so it's, you know, we've been seduced into this and, and uh, to allow women to uh, enter the workforce without without any limitations. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes the women end up getting trapped in the workforce uh, in ways that they don't want to be. So, um, you know, we have to be, have to be careful about this. Uh, it's understandable uh, that, you know, men have many advantages. There are certain professions that uh, nowadays, many professions that women do just as well as men. Um, but, you know, women have other options. And they, you know, there's a lot of books coming out by women uh, expressing uh, regrets that they they take they they've taken this option uh, sometimes to the exclusion of other options uh, that women have that that frankly men don't have such as you know raising children working part time um, you know uh, we're involving themselves in in charitable nonprofit non-paying activities and so forth that, that women have traditionally done often very well uh, and to the benefit of society um, but which they you know don't feel like they can do one one example I give in the book for example I said that traditionally a gentleman uh, cared for the poor gentlemen, uh, you know, in the tradition uh, of, of the English gentry, they created uh, charitable uh, foundations for the poor, which were often administered on a voluntary basis by their wives. The wives led uh, philanthropy. Mm. They were able by the, by the supported, supported by their husbands, the wives had the leisure, the time to, to engage in, in philanthropy. Well, what we have uh, and, and care for the poor and to do so in a very selfless, charitable, Christian, uh, altruistic way. Well, what we had when we, with the decline of this and the rise of the welfare state, is we have professional social workers. Professional social workers have a vested interest not not in curing problems of the poor, but in making more of them. Mm. Uh, and we see this all around us. Social workers have a vested pecuniary financial interest in making sure that there are more poor, that they continue to be poor, and that the poor are dependent upon them, the social workers yeah. and, and, the, and the welfare system. It's like any bureaucracy; it creates a vested interest in. Uh, creating the problems it's supposed to be solving. So, you know, it's not necessarily a net benefit to the women or to society or to anyone to have women doing the same thing for pay that at one time they were doing out of charity and, and, and voluntarily. Everything you say is wonderful and it's a noble ideal. I, I go along with a lot of that about churches and charities um, run by uh groups and entities other than the government is a great way to go. We, we need less government, but 
there are plenty of examples through history where the government had to was compelled almost to step in. You could take the Great Depression, maybe the most recent economy that we that was the economic collapse almost with COVID nineteen. The government had to step in. Do you think? private charities and individuals would have been able to breach the gap there? Well, yeah, that, I mean, that's a very good question. There's a number of places where I talk about this in the book, about the, you know, the way the state has stepped in and filled the gap um, you know, that was vacated, the, the, the vacuum that was you know, vacated by not only gentlemen, but, but you know, the church, um, uh, charities, uh, private charities, and so forth. Uh, is, is it a realistic ideal today? Well, I think in many cases it is because we don't talk about it. We don't have a debate. We don't have discussion mm. about this. Uh, in many cases, now we're we're too willing to if there's to a go problem, to government we, right to, to to hire functionaries right to pile on the functionaries and to um, you know to to get expect them to solve the problem for us rather than solving the problem ourselves. One example of this that I put is, is you know I, I I extol the value for a gentleman of of ownership of land of of, of stewardship over the land. Taking uh, owning the land, um, uh, perhaps a small amount, but uh, improving the land, um, being a being a steward, uh, making sure the land is you know, for example, in the country, the, the old idea of the country gentleman, um, you know, maintaining the hedgerows, uh, creating wildlife for the you know the fox hunters. I mean, it's a stereotype, but yeah. the idea of private land, you know, private ownership of land, is I think responsible, for example, for the beauties of the of the English countryside. Mm. Um, uh, uh, the French countryside this is also also the case where you know owners there was never a, national parks weren't created they weren't presided over by government functionaries or forest rangers. We in the United States did took a different route. We have increasingly uh, tried to preserve the environment and preserve nature not by individual private stewardship uh, and ownership, but by creating uh, you know national parks, national forests, um, uh, uh, land uh, preserves managed by bureaucrats. Well, in some cases, that, that I agree with you. In some cases, that was appropriate and it was good. But I think sometimes it also becomes the path of least resistance and it becomes too easy. Mm. And again, it's, it, it's another way of transferring uh, our lives to the control of the state. Yeah, which might make a case for some kind of a hybrid rural economy in, in America where most of the farms are almost owned by corporations and there's you know very few as a proportion, uh, small scale family farms, which presumably, you know, in their own self-interest, they take care of and manage and great husbandry and uh, creates the kind of ideal that you're describing there. Right, right. Precisely. Your ideas are countercultural and we're in a time in history where things are changing rapidly. I mean, none of us have saw this coming, how we've redefined our, our human sexuality. And there's a lot of piling on from woke corporations to a lot of um, special interest groups. And there's very, and the media, of course, is a cheerleader for all of this. A lot of the media, for sure. Do you think you'll be able to persuade people with your arguments? Are you going to win any over? Because you're go you're swimming against the tide here. Well, maybe, um, but I think in some ways, yes. I think young men, especially, I suppose the book is really targeted a little bit more, at least to young men than to older men, uh, are very confused today. Millennials and so forth are very confused about what is the you know what is the proper role of masculinity, what is the right masculinity, um, what is you know what is 
what is not toxic masculinity, what is not transgenderism, um, you know, the masculinity that we find all and all over the world, masculinity is being asserted is sometimes in unhealthy forms, the, the Taliban, for example. Yeah. Uh, or you, you find it in movements like the, you know, Hindu nationalism in India. Um, and sometimes it's, it, it, it's healthy and sometimes it isn't. So young men, I think, are searching for a healthy concept of masculinity. The churches, the Christian uh, world has been, ha- has been holding a dialogue for some time now on the, the role of, you know, what is the proper Christian uh, manhood, Christian masculinity. So I, I think um, if I have struck a good balance or at least started a dialogue here, then I think it is fertile ground for, for young men, especially, or all of us, to be asking the question, what is the proper kind of masculinity for our society? Um, how do we embrace masculinity and make it healthy and constructive for all of us, rather than denying masculinity altogether and renouncing it, which is obviously uh, untenable and, and very unhealthy? So that's what I'm I'm hoping that this book will do. Will do. And I hope it will have some practical value for the, for the men that read it. Can you help us understand and how do you see it, what's going on in the world today with all these woke corporations, the aggressive secular left feminist movement, the um, advance in, I suppose, uh, anti-family ideology, um, and just all the stuff that is so the opposite to what you have laid out in your book? Why? Why has it come upon us so quickly in the space of maybe maybe 36 months almost, of 48 months ago, this world was extremely different in its outlook? Right. right. Well, I'm a, I'm a student, actually. Of, I've spent my career studying political ideologies. Um, and I see this in, in some ways we have reached the kind of end of the road, the kind of reductio ad absurdum. Ideologies began roughly in the 16th century or so. They gradually um, became, you know, they've changed over the centuries. We had religious radicalism, nationalism, um, socialism, anarchism, communism. And the latest incarnation of, of radical politics is this sexual radicalism, of which I wrote my previous book, was about sexual, radical sexual ideology. And in many ways, the sec- I don't know, I, I don't know what's going to come next, but I think in some ways the radical sexual ideology is itself the, almost the reductio ad absurdum of modern politics in the modern world. I'm not sure it can get much stranger than what we're finding nowadays with, with transgenderism and so forth. Um, and it's, uh, you know, at some point we have to call a halt to it. At some point we have to examine uh, this kind of, this tendency toward to adopt ideologies, radicalism, desire to change the world and uh, for its own sake, just change for the sake of change. And to step back and say, you know, what is responsible stewardship of, of the world, of, of society, physically and socially? Um, and that's what this, you know, my book tries to do. At the end of the book, I, 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 I advise men, the, basic, the most basic principle of being a gentleman, I say, is stop rebelling. Stop rebelling against everything. Stop engaging in existential rebellion. The person to rebel against was your father. And it was your father's job to uh, help you channel your adolescent rebellion into constructive um, purposes, you know, good, good behavior rather than the destruction. Uh, and it, many, if you didn't have that experience because you didn't have a father, well, there's a lot of people like that today. And I hope this book will, will help to remedy that. But, but I try to urge men to take the high, high moral ground. Yes, they have, yes, in many ways, men are one of the most oppressed 
groups in our society today, the, the, the rights they've been denied have been, have been horrendous. And I've written two books about it. So I, you know, I, I, I know very well the legal oppression of men, especially fathers, for example, in the family courts. But to add our voices to the cacophony of victims and to, to engage in self-pity or withdrawal or passivity or, um, or, or mindless rebellion through things like, like sex and music and, and um, you know, the culture is, is not helping anybody. A man should take, assume that he is the, uh, the natural ruler of society uh, with, with other men. And he should step back and, and adopt the stance of one who has a stake in the system, uh, a stake in the, in the stability and the uh, perpetuity of society, and take that attitude when he's addressing these problems. So that's what I'm hoping men will do: is stop. Don't be a mirror image of uh, a mirror image of the feminists. Um, don't adopt their jargon: sexism, gender equality, things like that. R renounce the jargon. Renounce the, the self-pity and the rebellion and stand up and take the mindset of a ruler. Yeah, That's I'm a, not sure I, how far they're going to get at work um, in a traditional our traditional bad use of war, but in the traditional workplace, the workplace today, they're going to get pushback. Do you feel the world is on the verge of moral as well as economic collapse and we, we know the world is heavily indebted and there's enough economists out there would say we are on the verge even though we're printing all this money through central banks and it's propping us up those debts ultimately have to be paid so if we're on the verge of economic collapse are we also on the verge of moral collapse and what what would that world look like do you think well you're right i mean the world has changed enormously in just the last 18 months or two years uh, it's been amazing, and you know, of course, I can't predict the future, and um, uh, you know, it's for God alone. But uh, um, yes, I think uh, we we certainly are on uh, have been on the wrong path uh, in many in, in many years. I th for now, and I think we are seeing in many ways the culmination. But we're not seeing the culmination of just eighteen months or two years. I mean, we're seeing the culmination of decades and centuries of uh, trends toward this this kind of increasing nihilism and. Um, and, and rebelliousness in our society. And I think, uh, you know, in which we have indulged, um, you know, the rebelliousness and the uh, sexual uh, freedom of, of, of youth, as we, as we, you know, my generation, certainly. And at some point, we have to, we have to look, step back and look at this and say, uh, no, um, men uh, are the ones against whom the world rebels. Um, and uh, we have to, we have to be the ones, someone has to be um, to stand there and, and, and take responsibility for what's going on. And um, I, I, th I think that has to be, you know, that has to be men. Uh, there's no one else. So um, that's what I hope, uh, you know, I don't see any other way of preventing, as you say, this, this, this collapse of, of our civilization, which is we've been heading toward, I think, for a long time. Any parting advice uh, to the men of this world, to young men or older men, how they should conduct their affairs. I need to sum up all we've said. How would you advise them to settle down, get married, and do all those traditional things? Any any summary here? Yes, I mean, I do. I do believe that very strongly that a man becomes a you know has a becomes a stakeholder in the in the society when he when he's married and has children. Um, and uh, he becomes, uh, you know, he becomes a, uh, you know, as we say, a pillar 
uh, of the society. And I think that's, you know, I think that's what men have to do. Um, and again, I would say, you know, um, put away your, your adolescence, um, put away the, you know, as I say, at one point, the, the tattoos and the, and the, and the body piercings in the back of the baseball caps and the, you know, the rock music with the, with the angry men shouting obscene lyrics about all that's wrong with the world and surrounded by women, you know, in, in, in states of undress. I mean, this is not the kind of, this is not the kind of constructive behavior that's going to change things for the better. Um, we need to stand back and, and say, you know, this is, it, it's time to stop this, to grow up and to assume our, our place as the, as the, you know, the natural rulers of, of society. And uh, women have a part in that also, by the way. I don't say it's exclusively men, but it is men who, who must do it. Men have no choice in the matter. Your book's published by Sophia Institute Press. It's one of several books you've written. And this one's A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World. And my guest has been S.K. Baskerville. It's been a pleasure. And good luck with the book. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it too. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.